Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So who might intentionally have targeted U.S. electricity infrastructure and why? The lead starts right now. Moments ago, the North Carolina governor addressing a criminal act, a targeted attack on power substations, leaving thousands of customers, including those in hospitals, without power in the December cold. Are there any suspects? And does online chatter point to any possible motive? Plus, protesters in two very different countries taking on two very oppressive regimes. Could their demonstrations spark change in Iran? And China, plus the wonder of that erupting volcano in Hawaii that's more like an emotional trigger for those who live near the mountain's base. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. And we start today with our national lead. Moments ago, we got an update from officials in North Carolina after the FBI joined an investigation there into, quote, intentional and targeted attacks that left tens of thousands of North Carolinians without power. Utility crews responding to the outages found at least two power substations damaged by gunfire in Moore County. That's about an hour southwest of Raleigh. Local officials have not announced a suspect or a motive, and the local sheriff has not ruled it out as an act of domestic terrorism. Attacks on the United States power grid have been the subject of extremist chatter in recent years. And CNN's Whitney Wilde starts off our coverage from Moore County, North Carolina, where it could be days before power is restored. Moore County, North Carolina, will again plunge into darkness tonight, two days after the sheriff says someone opened fire on two power substations a few miles apart in Carthage and West End, North Carolina. Our medical calls have increased due to people maybe being on oxygen or having other medical um, devices that that require power. Um, We've had an increase in fire alarms. We've had an increase in traffic accidents. Police are working to find the person or people responsible for what they say was an intentional criminal act. So far, they are releasing little information, saying only the attack happened Saturday night and a gate at one of the substations was removed from its hinges. Power went down around 7 p.m. The same time, a drag show was set to take place in the area. Social media buzzed with rumors over the weekend that the attacks were some kind of effort to stop the drag show, but police say so far they have found no evidence connecting the two. No motivation, uh, nobody's, uh, no group has stepped up to uh, acknowledge or accept it. Uh, they're the ones that done it. The attack is the type of incident law enforcement and Homeland Security officials have warned about as recently as last week. The Department of Homeland Security updated its National Threat Assessment Bulletin November 30th, sounding the alarm about the potential for attacks on critical infrastructure. The outages have left the community here scrambling, and power likely won't be restored fully until Thursday. Got no way to heat because we don't have a fireplace. And then we don't have no gas grill or anything like that, so we're just stranded. 
at McNeil Oil and Propane in Aberdeen. Davis Clark says they are the only fuel provider for about 20 miles. First responders and Public Works employees lined up throughout the morning. As soon as the power went out, started getting calls. Um, we figured out a way to rig up a truck so that we could fuel emergency services, the police, fire, EMS. Uh, and that's when we started that. And it was a long night, Saturday night, and we've been going ever since. Clark is a third generation owner of the family business, and this is the first time they opened it up for drive through service. I've never seen anything like it. Keep Moore County in your thoughts and prayers. I hope they find who did this because it's, uh, it's senseless. Earlier, earlier this year, the Department of Homeland Security issued a memo saying that since 2020, domestic violent extremists have been saying on social media uh, and other online platforms that the energy grid is a particularly attractive target, Jake. Uh, so certainly uh, th what happened is that d you know, the Department of Homeland Security warned about something that ended up coming to fruition, which is very startling for law enforcement across the country. Meanwhile, here in Moore County, as they await for the power to come back online, schools still closed for tomorrow and a curfew will be in place tonight, Jake. All right. Whitney Wilde in Moore County, North Carolina. Thanks. Let's discuss with Juliet Kayem, the former assistant secretary of the Department of Homeland Security and CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller. John, walk us through what you think is likely happening on the ground in Moore County right now. How do these investigations work? How can they figure out who did this? Well, it's great to know a motive because that gives you a way to start towards people who have that motive, but they don't have that right now. So right now they're going to be doing video canvases, which is very hard in a remote area. Not a lot of video there. Um, trying to find where was the shooter? Did they leave footprints? Did they leave shell casings? Is there a fingerprint or DNA? Uh, some of that work can be done by getting an entrance of a bullet and an exit if it went through something and reversing that with a laser beam that can take you to a likely place where that bullet originated, maybe a shooting position that was secreted. Uh, but there's a similar case to this in 2013 at another power station in California that remains unsolved because of the areas they occur on. Um, it's a tough one. And Juliet, the sheriff would not say whether this was an act of domestic uh, terrorism. How will investigators figure out what the motive is? Uh, well, if you find suspects or just exactly what John was talking about uh, in terms of if you have um, evidence that will lead you to someone, that's going to be the most helpful. They'll look at online chatter. There's lots of rumors about online chatter. Uh, but there's really only two options, so or, or three. There could be a foreign threat, unlikely, just because it's such a small area, it's remote, it doesn't have that sort of impact that that you would think a foreign attack uh, would. Uh, it would be uh, a hate, uh, domestic terrorism, which would be focused on was something going on, and the, and the lights were to be turned out in an LGBTQ event. The third is, of course, an insider threat. And I just want to raise this because what we heard in the press conferences is, is the shooting of the of the areas was targeted enough to bring down two different facilities and impact that many people. You don't just drive by these places and know where to shoot. So they will be looking at the potential that there was either a casing or, or, or someone who knew the area, knew the facilities, and knew exactly where to shoot. You don't, these aren't drive-by incidences. These are ones in which you're targeting directly. Those are the three options available Interesting. now. And they would have to know quite a bit yeah. about, about infrastructure. Uh, yeah, these are big structures. And, and John, as we've talked about, we don't know uh, uh, the motive but you flagged the document that was passed around by some white supremacist groups in 2020 uh, talking about targeting power stations uh, in order to commit racially motivated attacks. It says, quote, 
peppered all over the country are power distribution substations that keep electricity flowing all over the country. Sitting ducks, worthy prey, with the power off, when the lights don't come back on, all hell will break loose, making conditions desirable for our race to once again take back what is ours, obviously, um, heinous uh, concept there. Um, How might postings such as this factor into the investigation? Well, we've been seeing that since 2020. So over the last couple of years, there's been a real uptick. And I think the Undersecretary of Homeland Security actually re-mentioned this today since it came out in a report in 2020. A real uptick in a focus on the power grid. I'm thinking back in 2020, I was seeing reports of uh, the three individuals uh, arrested in Las Vegas uh, uh, from the Boogaloo Boys group uh, who were conspiring to attack the power grid a uh, neo-Nazi group, the National Socialist uh, Order, suggested attacking the power grid in their online presence and in their uh, documents. Um, in July 16th, we had a Philadelphia incident where a drone flew into a power station. And I won't go into the details, but it was equipped to attempt to short out the system there. Um, and then there's that 14-page document you're talking about which kind of gives the how-to of sniper rifles and and the power grid. So this has been a real focus on the idea that you cause chaos in the white supremacist or accelerationist movement that's bent on toppling the government, and the chaos will help you get there. And and Juliet, uh, the sheriff addressed rumors yesterday that circulating on social media that the attack was uh, perhaps an attempt to stop a local uh, drag show, he said that investigators have not been able to directly tie that back. No, it's even if someone takes credit and says, oh, I know what happened, it may just be you know, hyperbole, big talk to, to say that they're in the loop. You, as an investigator's perspective, that's obviously relevant. What did she or he know, the social media posts that we're looking at? But you don't want to be dissuaded from, uh, from the real uh, uh, perpetrators, as John is saying, and that there's a whole pool of people who could qualify, both because of their ideology, but also... Uh, maybe their past uh, uh, employment. We just don't know yet. Yeah. Early days, yeah. Yes, just get the electricity running. John Miller and Juliet Cunningham, thanks to both of you. One day out from Georgia's runoff race, it could have international implications coming up. The new money and math that might be problematic for the GOP's Herschel Walker as Republicans try to stop Democrats from getting a one-seat cushion in the U.S. Senate. Plus, the Supreme Court case brought on by a website designer that could define the line between religious freedom and the rights of LGBT individuals to not be discriminated against. Stay with us. Just end to CNN, a judge has sentenced disgraced attorney Michael Avenatti to 14 years in prison for embezzling millions of dollars from four of his clients. You might remember Avenatti as the lawyer who represented Stormy Daniels, the adult film star and director who alleged she had an affair with then-candidate Donald Trump. The sentence, this sentence, 14 years, will begin after Avenatti finishes a five-year prison term he's serving after being convicted in two separate trials in New York. Also in our politics lead, and the final stretch... For Georgia's Senate runoff election, voters have already set a record for single-day early voting turnout, but this runoff has had far fewer days of early voting than previous years. As CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports from Georgia, former President Trump is now making what might be called a last-ditch effort to try to drag Republican candidate Herschel Walker across the finish line. One final day of overtime in Georgia. We are on the verge of victory. But I don't want us to do the victory dance before we actually get into the end zone. Senator Raphael Warnock exuding confidence, but warning Democrats against being complacent on the eve of his runoff against Republican challenger Herschel Walker. You can know you got a champion in Herschel Walker. 
With control of the Senate set to stay in Democratic hands, Walker implored Republicans to send him to Washington as a check on President Biden and his policies. Vote, vote, vote. If you hadn't voted, tell them to get out and vote. It's the final big act of the 2022 midterm election, with Georgia voters once again having the last word. More than 1.8 million have already cast ballots, but both sides know the outcome depends on Election Day turnout on Tuesday. Nothing could be more important for our democracy in this moment than your showing up. Walker faces steep challenges in money and math. I approve this message. Democrats have more than doubled GOP ad spending over the last month alone, an astonishing $55 million to $26 million in TV spots that have flooded the Georgia airwaves to the total cost of nearly $81 million since November 9th. The former football great is also scrambling to overcome an extraordinary 200,000 vote shortfall of underperforming Republican Governor Brian Kemp in November, a deficit complicating his path. Walker supporters are keeping hope alive. You think uh, more may come out to vote on Tuesday? I think there will be a lot of Republicans that will be out to vote. And I think a lot of them have already voted and voted. We voted early this time. It's voters like John and Marky Haynes who keep the outcome of the runoff hanging in suspense. With their Republican votes among the record-setting early ballots, Democrats are counting on. Call your father and your mother, your sister and your brother. Call Lottie Dottie and everybody. Tell them it's time to vote. The White House is also watching closely. A Warnock win would give Democrats a 51 to 49 majority in the Senate. Not only breathing room, but protection for the president and his agenda from the Republican-controlled House. Now, as for the president, Jake, President Biden has not stepped foot in Georgia during this campaign. He is calling into a radio uh, station here this afternoon, urging people to get out the vote. Speaking of former president, former President Donald Trump, who recruited Herschel Walker to run for this race in the first place, he also has not been campaigning here at the request of the Walker campaign. But he is also calling into a tele-rally tonight, trying to urge his base of supporters to get out and vote for Walker tomorrow. All right, Jeff Zeleny in Georgia for us. Thanks so much. This is the final race of the entire midterm election season. CNN special coverage begins tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern, and we will go until we have a winner. Coming up, significant changes by two oppressive regimes after protesters took on those in power. Stay with us. Stopping our world lead now, Russia says Ukraine is responsible for two drone attacks today on Russian air bases. One explosion captured in this video hit an airfield that houses Russia's strategic bombers. While Ukraine has not claimed responsibility yet, Russian President Vladimir Putin seems dead set on making winter as miserable as possible for as many in the Ukrainian public as he can. CNN's Will Ripley's in Kyiv right now, the capital, where Ukrainians are responsible for responding with resilience and unity. In Ukraine, winter is coming. Snow is not the only thing falling from the skies. On Monday, a massive missile attack by Russia. More than 70 missiles launched. Ukraine's Air Force says more than 60 intercepted forcing thousands in Kyiv to seek shelter underground. Uh, And the goal of this attack is to bring total destruction to our energy system. Crews are racing to restore power, but they're running out of Soviet-era replacement parts, adding urgency to Ukraine's request for more advanced missile defense, like the U.S.-made Patriot. And more generators, the latest attack plunging entire cities into darkness. At this fast food place, 
Braving below zero temperatures at the outdoor grill keeps the doors open when the lights are off. Some customers said they only want to come when there's no power because the food tastes so much better. We're just Ukrainians, she says. That's our secret ingredient. Another secret for surviving dark times? Candles, a good cry, and prayer. When you come here, what do you pray for? We pray for peace, for the war to be over, she says, describing the hardship of life without electricity. But then I come here and remember how much time we spent hiding in basements. Hiding from Russian soldiers who occupied and terrorized their town, Bucha, the site of what Ukraine calls unspeakable war crimes. If you didn't know what happened here, this could be any church in any quiet Kyiv suburb until you look closer and notice the bullet holes and this cross marking a mass grave for more than 100 men, women, and two children. Like five of Vera Goychuk's neighbors. What did it, it was sound? a cluster bomb. A cluster bomb. A cluster bomb. Bullet holes in her children's bedroom windows. After living through the hell of the Russian occupation, she can handle living without power. And the, what is the real problem is there is no electricity, we don't have any connection. So I have kids and if something wrong, I cannot even call to the hospital and uh, call emergency. She tells me when the power goes out, she loses cell phone service and internet. But then... I t I'm, oh my God, it's a miracle. Is that the lights coming on now? Yes, <laughs> yes. So the first the place she goes, this is the my... kitchen. Coffee, that's your number one yes, priority. Yes, it's my, my number one. She's grateful for the little things in life. It's a moment of happiness. Grateful just to be alive. That's it. It is surreal and chilling to sit in the kitchen with Vera there, and she's sipping her coffee and telling me how her neighbors were executed by the Russian soldiers right outside her house, and she and her kids sat for a month and looked out the window and the bodies just stayed there and people were too afraid to move them because the soldiers had taken over another house just down the street. She says she'll take the power outages as long as she's being defended by the Ukrainian military and not occupied by the Russians, Jake. All right, Will Ripley in Kiev, Ukraine, thank you so much. Turning to extraordinary protests directed at two of the world's harshest regime, regimes, China and Iran. Each was sparked by a single event and spread rapidly, revealing years of brewing discontent. But will these rare and risky demonstrations lead to actual change in Iran and China? We're going to start with CNN's Melissa Bell and a potentially seismic shift in Iran, where officials say the country's mandatory hijab law is under review. It was her death in the custody of Iran's morality police in September that led to the outpouring of grief and anger that has gripped an entire country. Demonstrations calling for justice for Masa Amini and for change that have now lasted for nearly three months. Anti-government protests led by women around the rallying cry, woman, life, freedom, and chance of death to the supreme leader. But now, signs of a possible shift in the government's hardline policy. Iran's attorney general saying that the mandatory hijab law is now under review by the judiciary and parliament. 
But Iranian state media have pushed back strongly on his comments, noting that the force is part of the Interior Ministry and not the judiciary. The Interior Ministry has not responded to CNN's requests for comment. What one uh, lawyer was saying is that the morality police has become so notorious and so uh, such a bad name that no official is willing to take responsibility for it, essentially this official claiming that it has been disbanded. But what's important is that the law of the mandatory hijab, which goes back to early 1980s, on paper has not changed. Speaking to CNN, women in Tehran were skeptical about the possibility of change. It's the regime propaganda. They just changed the name of their forces as they did before. So the media would announce that they have backed down. Then they continue all the brutal stuff they were doing. With Iran's hardline president, Ibrahim Raisi, hinting on Saturday that any reform may be limited in its scope. Iran's Republican and Islamic foundations are constitutionally entrenched, but there are methods of implementing the constitution that can be flexible. The stands taken by several Iranian celebrities and athletes in support of the protests suggest that crucial barriers of fear of the regime may have been broken, with a widening also of the protesters' demands, from more rights for women to the end of the regime itself, and a sense that any reforms it undertakes now may prove too little too late. Now, today, Jake, was the first day of a three-day nationwide strike that's been called by the protesters and that appears to have been fairly widely observed across the country in several Iranian cities. This is the country and the world beyond it waits to hear whether those limited concessions will or will not be made. And perhaps more importantly, Jake, whether such concessions would be enough to convince the protesters to go home and stop seeking the revolution that so many hope for. All right, Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that report. Now to China. Last week, police confiscated subway riders' smartphones to gather intelligence on demonstrations and even deleted apps from those phones to censor any protest images and prevent it from spreading. At the time, police also flooded the streets to intimidate protesters who called for the end of China's zero COVID policy and in some cases calling for regime change as well. But today, a remarkable shift and easing of some restrictions for commuters They no longer have to show evidence of a negative COVID test to take public transportation in most major cities in China. And CNN's Selena Wang is in Beijing for us. Selena, does the Chinese public, do they think that the easing of these restrictions is evidence that the protests may have worked in at least some small way? Yeah, Jake, I mean, it is just remarkable to see that in authoritarian China, protests appear to have forced the Communist Party to change its tune on COVID. Authorities, they've been cracking down hard and fast on these demonstrators, but clearly it made the authorities realize that zero COVID is just not sustainable. And it's even a threat to social stability, which the Communist Party is obsessed with. So we are seeing some easing of COVID restrictions, more than 20 cities scrapping that requirement for COVID tests on public transport. Some places are allowing residents under some conditions to quarantine at home instead of being sent to a quarantine facility. But all of these changes, they are happening in a patchwork across the country. So as some places are loosening rules, others are still clinging to harsh restrictions. And our daily lives, they're still dictated by a whole web of COVID rules. So for instance, here in Beijing, we're still standing outside in the cold every other day, waiting in long lines to get that 48-hour PCR test required to still get in to most public places. We're also still tracked everywhere we 
go and forced to scan our health codes. And there is still the threat of being sent to quarantine. This country, it has built up this whole infrastructure around zero COVID. It's been pouring all of its resources towards these mass quarantine facilities and mass testing rather than things like boosting vaccinations and the healthcare capacity, which, Jake, are necessary for a real reopening. All right, Selena Wang in Beijing, thank you so much. Coming up next, hear what Supreme Court justices said today about the case brought on by a website designer who refuses to do business for same-sex couples. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments earlier today over a case that pits two competing American principles against one another, free speech and freedom of religion, and the right to not be discriminated against. On one side, whether a graphic designer who holds religious views opposing same-sex marriage should be forced by the government to take customers who want her to make websites promoting same-sex weddings. And the other side, whether LGBTQ couples have a right to receive services from private businesses free of discrimination, just like a straight couple. CNN's Jessica Schneider has more on this fight. The Supreme Court now poised to decide whether certain businesses can refuse to work with same-sex couples on the basis of free speech. Granting such a license to discriminate would empower all businesses that offer what they believe to be expressive services, from architects to photographers to consultants, to refuse service to customers because of their disability, sexual orientation, religion, or race. Colorado web designer Lori Smith, who openly declares she's selective about websites she'll design, brought the case. She's asking the Supreme Court to rule that she does not have to comply with a state law that prohibits businesses from discriminating against same-sex couples. The state of Colorado is forcing me to create custom, unique artwork, expression, communicating and celebrating a different view of marriage, a view of marriage that goes against my deeply held beliefs. But the liberal-leaning justices expressed concern that if creators can choose their customers, discrimination could run rampant. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson asking whether a mall photographer could say only white kids can sit on Santa's lap, and Justice Sonia Sotomayor asking about interracial or physically disabled couples being turned away. In so it the doesn't way, really, there is no line on race, there is no line on disability, ethnicity, None of the protected categories That's in a public accommodation law. The First Amendment is broad enough to cover the lesbian website designer and the Catholic calligrapher. The line is that no one on any side of any debate has to be compelled to express a message that violates their core convictions. Smith says she is in the business of expressive speech. And while she's not opposed to working with same-sex couples in other areas, she argues she should be able to choose the messages she promotes, an argument some conservative justices seem to side with. So the question isn't who, it's what. Always. Why are you right about how you characterize website designers? Why are they different from, say, restaurants? Because they're creating speech. In those other examples, speech is not at issue. The Supreme Court sidestepped this same issue four years ago, ruling in favor of a Colorado baker who refused to make wedding cakes for same-sex couples, but on very narrow grounds that only applied to that case. All right, all right. Now the stakes are much higher, with concern building among LGBTQ advocates that a ruling for the website designer could be a harbinger for other adverse rulings. If there were to be a loophole of the kind discussed, people with disabilities, African Americans, Jews, Muslims, others could find themselves without access to the marketplace. 
Now, there's currently no case before the Supreme Court that would eliminate the right to same-sex marriage. But still, there is this concern that conservative justices could eventually overturn that precedent. After all, Jake, it was just a few months ago that they overturned Roe v. Wade. And in that opinion, Justice Clarence Thomas said that this court should take a look at overturning other precedents, including the 2015 ruling that did establish same-sex marriage nationwide. All right, Jessica Schneider outside the U.S. Supreme Court for us. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Louise Melling. She's the deputy legal director for the ACLU. And Douglas Laycock, who's a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia Law School. They have different views of this case, um, and I want to have them discuss it. Douglas, at issue here is Colorado's anti-discrimination law. Are the religious rights of this web designer, Lori Smith, violated by a Colorado law that states she cannot refuse service based on someone's sexual orientation? Well, religion is her motivation, but this is not actually a freedom of religion case. The court refused to review that issue. So this is about free speech, um, which is troublesome in some ways because everyone has free speech rights. A ruling here would not be limited just to religious conscientious objectors. Um, But yes, this is clearly speech, wherever the line might be, a website designer Her job is to promote and celebrate this wedding and make these events, the events around the wedding, the most memorable, the best that they can be. Uh, And she's going to use her creative talents to promote that message. So this is clearly compelled speech of the sort that the court has said for decades the government cannot demand. And Louise, you disagree. Why? Um, this this isn't this case is really about our nation's civil rights laws. This case is whether or not there's a constitutional right to discriminate. That's what it means to argue that the right of free speech would give you a right to override the compelling interest that the government has in ending discrimination. This law doesn't say anything about what the product is. What the Colorado law regulates is the conduct. It regulates the conduct of turning people away. If you listen to the argument, even listening to what Jessica was reporting earlier, there's really not many limits to the theory that was being advanced in this case in terms of what communicates a message. We know it's not limited to words because counsel concedes that or argues it applies to cakes, it applies to flowers. And Justice Kennedy, just a few years ago in Masterpiece, said that when you start to have a long list of people who can refuse services, services around weddings and and marriages, what you have then is a community-wide stigma that's completely inconsistent with our civil rights laws. So, I feel as if what's happened in these cases is the focus is being put on the product and the focus is being put on the owner when what these laws do is regulate the conduct of whether you're shown to the door because of who you are in violation of our nation's civil rights laws. And Douglas, the the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, did not accept blacks as full members until 1978. Um, Using the argument that you're making... Could a Mormon business person in 1977, before blacks were accepted as full partners in the church, should that person have been allowed to discriminate against a, let's say, black couple uh, because of their religious views? Not in my view. Um, I think the I think the lawyer for the web designer here gave the other answer. But but in my view, uh, race is constitutionally unique. Uh, no other right. No other category of protected class, however badly it may have been treated, uh, suffered 250 years of slavery, required a civil war in 
750,000 dead and three constitutional amendments uh, to try to achieve some version of equality. And we're still trying to actually make that work. So I think the government has a compelling interest in race cases that it doesn't have in other civil rights categories. And Louise, let me ask you, many mainstream major religions do not allow same-sex marriage. Um, Where is the line here in your view? Because obviously you're not in favor of telling the Catholic Church it has to officiate same-sex marriage ceremonies. Right, there's a difference between whether you, as as a leader of a faith, have to officiate and perform weddings versus whether what's at issue here is this is a place of public accommodation. This is a business. This is an institution that has chosen to open itself up to the public and to serve the public. And once you do that with the privileges that come with that, then you're bound by our nation's civil rights laws, which say that you can't discriminate. And here, you know, if you accept the theories that were being advanced in the courtroom, you could have is I think one of the examples was a, ph- a photography studio that refused, for example, to take pictures of women executives to do headshots because that would communicate a view that it was appropriate for women to be executives. We can go through the list and it's it's quite endless in a way that is a threat to our a threat to our civil rights laws. All right, Louise Melling and Douglas Laycock, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Coming up next, one of the most unique views of that erupting volcano. CNN is along for the ride. Stay with us. And we are back with our national lead and live images right now from Hawaii's Big Island. This is the U.S. Geological Survey's webcam, which shows the Mauna Loa volcano continuing to erupt. CNN's David Culver is in Hawaii for us, capturing some remarkable new images from above and stories on the ground from those who know firsthand the life-changing power of these volcanoes. We are on the road before sunrise, quickly realizing we can already spot our destination some 30 miles out. There you see it, that red-orange glow, Mauna Loa erupting. To give you a better view, though, we go up in the morning dark. Paradise Helicopters, Darren Hamilton, our pilot and guide, giving us rare access. I assume we'll know when we see the volcano. Yeah, it's just off the kind of the eastern side there. At about the one o'clock position, that is the plume there. Having flown in military hot zones, Darren even admits this is firepower like no other. What was it like the first time you flew over lava? Uh, It was a blast. It can also be challenging, especially with heavy fog or volcanic smog. So there you can see the gases from Fisher 3. Those acidic gases, dangerous if the concentration levels are too high. On the ground, officials closely watching the lava's potential impact on Saddle Road, the main highway that connects the east and west of the island. Erupting last Sunday for the first time in 38 years, Mauna Loa, the world's largest active volcano, is one of five that make up Hawaii's big island. And it's not the only one currently erupting. Neighboring Kilauea, also active, though no longer shooting lava to the surface like it did in 2018. We're on Kaupili Street, which is where my house was at, and it's that away, on the opposite side of the subdivision. Dorothy Thrall invited us to where her home now sits, buried under 60 feet of lava. You can see a metal streetlight fused into the rock. Four years after Kilauea did this to her Leilani Estates community, she still walks it as though she's on her old street. 
with her old neighbors. When you have something like this, I assume you're all dispersed after that. Yeah, we lost that sense of community, and it's what we lost, in addition to the homes. Mauna Loa's eruption, an emotional trigger for Dorothy and others, forcing the trauma from Kilauea back to the surface. The 2018 lava flow wiped out more than 600 homes here, some untouched, but left lava-locked, an island within the island. Dorothy showed us this video she captured a few weeks back, trekking over lava rock, helping friends gather the last of their belongings from their home. The reminders of devastation here? Hard to miss. This was a home. Uh, they evacuated the second night, and I believe it went under the third night. And just took their home? Just took their home. And four years later, it's still steaming? It's still steaming, yep. And how long will it steam like that? Probably 30 to 40 years. How is it that you can still see beauty after so much loss? Because uh, lava is beautiful. <laughs> it's, a, it's Pele's creation. That's how the island was formed. That's how the island was built. An appreciation shared by Native Hawaiians, leaving offerings on Mauna Loa, and thousands of tourists and locals arriving past sunset just to witness the lava glow. Nighttime traffic backs up for miles. To avoid the congestion, let's get back to the skies. That's two to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, or about 1,000 degrees Celsius. That's molten rock flowing like water. Which has already crossed one volcano road, power lines and all, a searing slice right through it. Incredible the heat you feel as soon as you get close to it. And, and look at this, the rushing flow, the river. You see the current of lava. Darren estimates it's moving 30 to 40 miles per hour. But this, the source of it all, I mean, there's nothing like this, just spewing from the top. Jake, the experience, uh, I struggle to find words. It was unreal to fly over that lava and to have those sensory moments of, of the heat and also the smell of the sulfur, which you're starting, by the way, to smell across the island. So it is starting to spread quite quickly. But folks say the concentration of it has not yet reached that level where it's really concerning. Overall, though, they're watching as it inches closer to that main highway that we've been talking about, that saddle road that sits now two miles from the edge of the lava. And it is crawling closer, about 25 feet per hour, and they're worried that if it continues erupting, which as of now it seems to be doing it, it could cause major issues. All right, David Culver in Hawaii. Remarkable report. Thank you so much. A royal feud is about to play out on a very public stage. The new Harry and Meghan documentary that has Buckingham Palace on edge. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the Kremlin launching new strikes into Ukraine, targeting power and water. This hour, we'll introduce you to some Russians who are in Ukraine fighting against their own. Plus, parents across the country scrambling to find children's pain medications. What is driving this latest drug shortage? Leading this hour, however, Georgia on our mind. It's the final day of campaigning before voters decide who will represent their state in the United States Senate. Democrat incumbent Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker have been crisscrossing the state. While the winner will not determine control of the Senate, it will determine if Democrats will have some wiggle room when it comes to their agenda. Some significant legislation supported by almost all of the Democrats in the Senate has been altered or blocked by two key Senate moderate Democrats. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona picking up a Senate seat would help Democrats pass more of what they want. Our coverage today starts with Eva McKend in Georgia, where Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker are making their final pitches to voters. 
with the Georgia Senate contest in its final hours. Hello, Georgia Tech! Tomorrow is a big day. The candidates rallying their core supporters to vote for them once again. Don't y'all have exams? Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock focusing Monday on turning out younger voters, campaigning with Gen Z Congressman Maxwell Frost. We know that young people don't make up the biggest voting block right now, but we are the block that matters. Senator Warnock, why this emphasis on young voters in these crucial final hours? Young people have little tolerance for inauthenticity. They keep me inspired. They keep me on my toes. And I'm proud of the ways in which the young people all over Georgia are showing up. Republican challenger Herschel Walker hitting five campaign stops with a focus on deep red North Georgia. You can know you got a champion in Herschel Walker. You will always have a champion in me because I love you all and we're going to win this election and get Georgia back together. Tuesday's fiercely contested runoff, coming after neither candidate, received more than 50% of the vote during November's general election. There's a sense of accomplishment to come in and get it done early. Both campaigns now laser-focused on turning voters out Tuesday after early voting ended with over 1.8 million ballots being cast, including a one-day record of more than 350,000 last Friday. Are you ready to do this one more time? As the candidates make their closing arguments, both campaigns up with new TV ads, making a final push to get out the vote. Warnock touting his work ethic and dedication to serving Georgians, arguing the race is primarily about competence and character. Who's more motivated? Is it them or us? While Walker enlists the help of recently re-elected Georgia Governor Brian Kemp to make the case for his campaign and argues he would be a necessary check on President Joe Biden. Democrats have more than doubled Republican ad spending for the runoff, 55.1 million to 25.8 million, as the parties square off for one final Senate showdown of the 2022 midterm election. So who all has voted already? Oh, and who all's got to vote tomorrow? Call Lottie Dottie and everybody. Tell them it's time to vote. And former President Donald Trump will hold a teller rally for Herschel Walker later this evening. In response to this, Senator Warnock dismissing Walker as Trump's handpicked candidate. As for this criticism that Warnock is too closely aligned with President Biden, he swatted that away as well today on the campaign trail, arguing he has a record of bipartisanship in Congress. Senator Warnock ends the day here at this brewery at a rally in Atlanta. Herschel Walker ending the day in Kennesaw, Georgia. Jake? All right, Eva McCann in Georgia for us. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss is Georgia's Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. Secretary Raffensperger, good to see you. So Georgia has broken some records for single-day early voting, but overall, in aggregate, the number of early votes cast is far less than in the 2021 runoff because this runoff has had fewer days of early voting. Doesn't that suggest that this new law is hurting the cause of enfranchisement and encouraging as many Georgians as possible to vote? Well, actually, Jake, four years ago, I was in a runoff and we had 1.5 million total votes show up. Already we're at nearly 1.9 million, over a million probably tomorrow. So we'll be at 3 million. So I think we're still going to have strong turnout. 
And historically, not the same number of people show up for runoffs as show up for the general race. But we've had strong one-day totals. Tomorrow we'll have strong turnout. The counties will have all of their precincts open. And we've really worked hard to keep those lines short. And we're expecting strong turnout tomorrow. And we think that uh, we'll keep the short lines line short and people be moving through there and uh, able to exercise the vote. We've actually already had 80,000 people that voted in this runoff that didn't vote in the fall at all. So that's what you're really seeing is people that were kind of sitting up, sitting back and watching things are getting engaged in this race. So we think both sides are energized. Herschel Walker uh, criticized you and newly reelected Georgia Governor Brian Kemp uh, after the November 2020 election, criticized you two for certifying Georgia's election results for Joe, Joe Biden. Um, is your office prepared if Walker does not accept the results of this election? Oh, absolutely, because we're going to do an audit of this race. We've already talked to the counties about doing that. We did one for the fall race. We've also did one back, obviously, in 2020. But we do risk-limiting audits of a statewide race, and this one will be, obviously, the only one left will be the senatorial race, and we'll verify that the count was accurate and that the votes, you know, are what the votes are. Right, but of course, you, you did that after the 2020 election, and it didn't satisfy Donald Trump. And, and Walker, Herschel Walker, would retweet Trump's election lies after November 2020. And he spread false theories about voter fraud in Georgia. Do you think someone like that belongs in the Senate? Well, I think now that people have had the facts, had had time to really look at it. I wrote a letter to Congress. I wrote a book really clarifying all the facts and the facts are out there. But tomorrow, we just want to make sure that we're going to get focused on this election, making sure that the voters have the opportunity to vote we get those results posted quickly at the end of the day, and we will do an audit to verify who won this race. And at the end of the day, we expect whoever that is will abide by the results because the voters will speak tomorrow. Your governor, uh, Brian Kemp, has obviously forgiven Walker because he's out there campaigning with him. He started a new ad to drum up support and turnout for him. Would you campaign for Herschel Walker if you were not secretary of state serving this role as the uh, top election official? Well, I'm Secretary of State, so that's hypothetical, but I do know the governor was out there, and I saw the governor's ad. It was a fantastic ad. I'll take off my SOS hat, put on my partisan hat, and that's the kind of uh, ad that really will energize Republican voters to get out to vote. But likewise, I know that the other side is doing the same thing. So uh, like I said, I'm going to keep my Secretary of State hat on right now uh, because that's what we're really tasked to do, to make sure I stay in my lane. But we're going to make sure we have an honest and fair election, and I fully expect at the end of the day that people both sides will abide by the results because this is the people speaking on who they want to be their next U.S. senator. Do you think Georgia is a purple state now fundamentally or is it just that in 2020, 2021 and 2022, Donald Trump has turned it into a purple state by turning off so many moderate voters? Well, I think that we're a competitive state and it really this shows you like the governor's race and my race this fall that we won, and we won very convincingly because we had a message that was broad-based. And I think that's really the way forward for anyone. If you build broad-based coalitions, you'll do well in the state of you know, Georgia. And that goes all the way back to some of the senators that we've had in the past that you know weren't forced into runoffs, that they won on their own merits because they had the right tone. So you look at like Senator Isaacson, you look at Senator Saxby Chambliss on our side, and then also Senator Sam Nunn. Those men you know, were people of, of strong character and they didn't have to worry about having runoff races because they had broad-based appeal. And so uh, at the end of the day, I think the governor and I both showed this fall, this is how you win going forward, having broad-based coalitions that can really carry a state. 
All right, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, good luck to you tomorrow. I'm hoping for an event-free and smooth sailing day uh, in Georgia. And you at home, be sure to join CNN tomorrow for our special coverage of the Georgia runoff and the results. Coverage starts at 4 p.m. Eastern and we'll go until we have a winner for you. Coming up, Russians fighting against Russia in one Ukrainian town, even killing soldiers from their own country to stop the Kremlin's barbaric advance, a CNN exclusive next. Plus, every family fights, but the new Harry and Meghan documentary appears to be taking the royal feud to a new level. Stay with us. In Ukraine, this winter is all about survival. A new wave of Russian bombing targeting Ukraine's energy infrastructure has put the country on a brink of a humanitarian disaster, as millions of innocent Ukrainians could potentially face winter without electricity or heat or running water. CNN's Sam Kiley is in Kramatorsk for us with a CNN exclusive on how some Russians are now volunteering to fight with Ukrainians against the Russian army. Caesar is Russian. He's taking a break at a monastery from fighting Russians in nearby Bakhmut. It's a relief from scenes like this, Bakhmut's Ukrainian field hospital. He's been defending this Ukrainian town from Russia's most intense assault along an 800-mile front. Artillery duels and trench warfare have almost destroyed Bakhmut as Russia throws its army at a bid for victory after months of defeats to the north and south. Defending Bakhmut against his Russian motherland is a religious imperative for Caesar. The fighting is very brutal now, he says. There are very few prisoners. When you see those Russians in your gun sights, what do you think and what do you feel? I believe that these people who have broken the law of man and the law of God, I have no pity for them. I take them prisoner if I can, but most often I just have to kill them. So have you killed a lot of your countrymen? A dozen and a half. This is the remains of a Russian Orthodox monastery. Now, for Vladimir Putin, the Orthodox Church is absolutely central to his vision of the Russian world. For some Russians, though, that's a world they don't want to live in. Indeed, they don't want it to survive. Ukraine's Orthodox Church broke with Moscow three years ago. This is all that's left of a rebranded Ukrainian Orthodox St. George's Monastery after nine months of war. Putin says that he's defends uh, traditional values, yeah? <laughs> and that's uh, the result of his defending. Ruined old monastery. Vinny has been fighting in Bakhmut for weeks against mercenaries from Russia's Wagner company, many of them convicted criminals. It's obvious, he says. When private companies hire criminals and convicts, imagine, a man kills once and they put him in jail, then he kills a second time and he becomes a repeat offender under the law. Then he gets let out of jail and given a gun. That's not a person, that's a beast. After a former Wagner deserter, Yevgeny Nushin, was murdered in a video that was praised by Wagner's boss, Yevgeny Prigozhin, Vinny is in no doubt how he would be treated if captured. It'll be the end, 100%, but it'll just be more painful. The Russian Legion does claim to be in the hundreds, and it says many more back home are trying to join Ukraine's army. Alongside their Ukrainian allies, the Russian Legion is focused on the battle for Bakhmut, the aim of the war after 
is more ambitious. He says, I'm doing my military and Christian duty. I defend the Ukrainian people. And when Ukraine is free, I will carry my sword to Russia to free it from tyranny. Now, Jake, uh, Bakhmut has been the centre of the most ferocious fighting since at least the fall of Kherson, if not before that, more than about a month ago. Uh, and one of the interesting things, I'm just speaking uh, in the last 24 hours to an American volunteer who's bang on the front line, if you'll excuse the pun, in Bakhmut. And he said the incredible thing is that the Russians are sending out wave upon wave of infantry. He's talking about killing 30 to 40 men a day. And every now and again, somebody gets through and invests, takes over a house, and they slowly moving forward, gaining ground at immense cost to the Russians. And of course, the Ukrainians are suffering almost as badly too, Jake. All right, Sam Kiley, thanks so much for that report. Coming up, new CNN reporting about Donald Trump's 2024 campaign and why even many of his allies are disappointed. This is the former president said he essentially wants to tear up the U.S. Constitution. Stay with us. And our politics lead allies of former President Trump say that they're worried about the lackluster start to his third campaign for the White House. Nearly three weeks after he launched his latest bid, Trump has yet to hold a public rally in an early voting state or even leave his home state of Florida, baffling many who experienced the frenetic pace of his previous campaign. CNN's Kristen Holmes is following this for us. Kristen, what are you hearing from these Trump allies about why they're worried? Well, Trump allies and advisors say that while they do believe that Trump is the undisputable front runner in 2024, this isn't really a time he can squander, particularly given that there are so many Republican heavyweights who seem more than interested in knocking Trump off of his throne. And this inactivity in the campaign has many of these allies wondering, is Trump's heart really in it? Are we going to see some kind of surge, new energy in 2023, or is Trump not going to be able to meet this new political environment? And Jake, when you look at the campaign and what's happened since, there have really only been three notable events. The first one was one that was unintended and actually dreaded by Trump's team, and that was Attorney General Merrick Garland announcing a special counsel to oversee those investigations into Trump. And Trump's announcement actually seemed to be the catalyst for that. The other was a dinner with a white supremacist and a neo-Nazi. And the other one after that was Trump calling for the termination of the Constitution. I want to read to you what one former Trump advisor told Gabby or our colleague who worked on this story with me, they said, so far he's gone down from his bedroom, made an announcement, gone back up to his bedroom, and hasn't been seen since, except to have dinner with a white supremacist. And again, this was a former Trump advisor. And when you talk about those GOP heavy hitters who are looking to knock Trump off of his throne, a part of the reason we were told by so many sources that he announced so early was in order to freeze the field. And that has really had seemingly a lack of impact in that effect. Just days after his announcement at the Republican Jewish Coalition, a, a number of Republicans came out, several of them just lashing out at Trump, others, former allies, indicating that they were willing to take him on in 2024. And Jake, I will note that according to the campaign, this is all intentional. They are taking a breather and planning for the next two years. And that, of course, is a plan that these allies are looking forward to seeing. All intentional to go from the Republican Jewish Coalition Convention to a dinner with two Holocaust deniers. Sure, that makes perfect sense. Kristen Holmes, thanks so much. Staying in our politics lead, don't believe your lying eyes. Donald Trump is now falsely claiming he did not call for the termination of the U.S. Constitution in order to return him to power in response to his baseless claims that the 2020 election was stolen. Except that's exactly what he did in a Truth Social post on Saturday to, quote, 
A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution, unquote. This dangerous call from the former president is drawing crickets from many Republican officials, but not all. CNN Chief Congressional Correspondent Manu Raju is live on Capitol Hill. And Manu, you are hearing some criticism from Republicans about this today. Yeah, that's right. They just got back from Washington. I've caught up with several of the top Republicans as they head into Mitch McConnell's office for an evening leadership meeting. And several of them are criticizing Donald Trump. They're doing it after being asked by reporters like me, including Senator John Cornyn, who called this an irresponsible statement by the former president, John Thune, the number two Republican, saying that he certainly couldn't disagree more with the former president. Rick Scott, a member, the current head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, defending the Constitution. But one of the, all three of them, none of them would say that this disqualifies Trump from being president. All of them stopping short on that question. Rick Scott saying that's up to the voters to decide. Now, this has given some potential Trump opponents in 2024 an opportunity to go after him, including his former vice president, Mike Pence. I think everyone that serves in public office, everyone that aspires to serve or to serve again, should make it clear that we will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Now, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, has not yet weighed in. He was asked about this by our colleague Ted Barrett. He said to us that there would be, uh, he'll make some comments tomorrow at his weekly leadership press conference, assuming he is asked about it. And no comment yet also, Jake, from the top Republican who wants to be the House Speaker with the support of Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy. Oh, that's that's a shock. Uh, What are Democrats saying about this outrageous call to terminate the Constitution? Well, they're calling on Republicans to say more. That's what we heard from the White House. We also heard that on the floor today from Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Listen. Finally, Donald Trump cannot seem to go a week without doing or saying something disgusting, dishonorable, and frankly, disqualifying for high office. It's as if Donald Trump is on a mission to find new ways to sink lower and lower to the detriment of America. How can anyone hope to take the presidential office, oath of office, to preserve and protect the Constitution while simultaneously calling for the Constitution's termination. It's wholly disqualifying on its face. And of course, this is a familiar pattern that Republicans have faced throughout the Trump era, controversy after controversy, trying to sweep it under the rug and move on to the next issue, hoping that it will be the same situation here. The White House, Senate Democrats also trying to make that not happen here. The White House putting out a statement saying that it should not be a heavy lift for congressional Republicans to denounce these comments. Yeah, okay. you shouldn't be happy left to denounce Holocaust denial either, but there you are, Manu Rasho on Capitol Hill. Here's just, by the way, historically a taste of what Donald Trump has said previously about the importance of being a president and upholding the Constitution. I have no higher duty than to defend the laws and the Constitution of the United States. We will support, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. We believe in the American Constitution, our beloved Constitution. That was then, but now Gloria uh, and the rest of the panel, Donald Trump wrote, and I'm just quoting him. This is is his words. In all caps. Referring to the massive fraud, and I don't know if that's about Hunter Biden's laptop and Twitter suppressing the story or about election fraud that didn't happen or whatever. A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. And then he came out and said, I didn't, I never said what I said. I never said what I wrote. I, I mean, it's, it's getting absurd. It's, it's ridiculous at this point. And Larry Hogan, 
uh, Republican governor of Maryland for now, uh, who's going to probably challenge him for president, uh, tweeted today, I can't believe this even has to be said, but the Constitution is not the problem. And uh, Ambassador John Bolton, by the way, former national security advisor, came out today and said, if nobody will challenge him and say, this is un-American, I'm going to run for president myself if nobody's going to repudiate him. So at some point, as Chuck Schumer said, somebody in the Republican Party has to say, you shouldn't be president of the United States. Jake, that's it. I just, as a former Republican, I just want to see Republican outrage. Forget about the reaction for a moment. He called for the termination of the United States Constitution. That's what he said. Right. And damn it, there is zero Republican outrage. None. Well, there, there, there's some, to be yeah. fair. Oh. To be fair, here's the incumbent, oh. freshly reelected, Governor of New Hampshire, uh, Chris Sununes. Take take a listen. Right. It's outrageous, and it's it's just driving even more people away from him in terms of 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 t- his race in twenty four because he's proving day after day that he becomes more and or I should say less and less electable in November of twenty four. Good to hear. Uh, I disagree with him that this is making Trump more less electable. It's certainly strengthening him within the Republican Party. But McCarthy, nothing. Ron DeSantis, anybody else who wants to be president, nothing. Well, because they don't think they have anything to gain for primary voters who have supported uh, Trump regularly and continuously. The majority of the electorate is independent, more than 40 percent. But Republicans have to make a play for a base that has been taken over by Trumpism. And let's call it what it is. This is an authoritarian play by somebody who lost and does not like it. It is the type of play that we have seen in the developing world where they suspend constitutions, they suspend parliaments, and they try to come back to power, usually with violence, as we saw on the insurrection of January 6th. And the Democrats were the ones who dominated the message of democracy is on the ballot. That was not a Republican play this time around. I don't know how you come back and, and recover that ground of Reagan's beacon of hope of democracy to the world. And except, Leanne, and, and just, just, I, I just want to, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but you know what Kevin McCarthy, who is a, probably about to be the new Speaker of the House, what he said the very first order of business would be for Republicans after they've taken over. To read the Constitution of the United States. <laughs> they are criticizing Democrats, saying that this has not been done in years. And so Republicans are going to be the ones to restore the Constitution and the, sacris- the sacredness of the Constitution. But yet they aren't able to criticize the leader of their party when they say the Constitution should be dismissed. Now, Republicans have over and over again had an opportunity to dismiss Trump, to say he is not the right person to lead their party, and they have refused to do so over and over again. So when you talk about plays around the world, this is also a similar play that's happened in this country over and over again. After January 6th, when there was a violent attack on the Capitol, they tried to disrupt the counting of the electoral count vote or votes. They could have gotten rid of him then. But it, it's, when, not to. it's when it's in their own self-interest. That's when they're going to maybe uh, yeah. start to sort of push him aside. And, you know, you have a runoff in Georgia. If his candidate loses, that's that's one more thing against Donald Trump. But, you know, we've seen this over and over again after January 6th, et cetera, et cetera. Now... If they start to see that he's hurting their own re-election chances yeah. and their political careers, maybe they'll do well, so they I want to ask you a question because bad-mouthing uh, the Constitution is just, is, is, is just one thing from this last couple weeks. Forget the investigations for a second. 
forget Merrick Garland, uh, you have terminate the Constitution. You also have Donald Trump not only dining with two anti-Semite Holocaust deniers, but refusing to condemn them in any way. And I read a story in The Guardian that quoted two people close to Trump saying that Donald Trump thinks that condemning them would hurt him with his base. Do you think that's what's going on? Do you really think there are enough neo-Nazis in the Republican base that Donald Trump condemning these two freak shows would hurt him? Yes. Uh, As someone who comes from the base and engages with the base every day, um, they have no problem with what Trump has done these last few weeks. And they're more bent out of shape now at at Twitter, um, suppressing the whole Hunter Biden story Um, The scary, ugly truth is McCarthy and any other Republican official is scared to death of where this base is. And, Jake, this base is now fully radicalized. It's not a surprise, because remember when Trump came out and said that he wanted to block all Muslims from entering the country in 2015? It's a very short distance from being anti-Muslim to anti-Semitic. It is a very short distance from being just being racist. Yeah. Right. This is the ultimate conclusion, a natural conclusion of opening that Pandora's box of saying the quiet parts out loud. It's not a dog whistle now. We've seen the evolution of how racism is open and public. The idea that uh, people can be called vermin once again. All of this that we should be exterminating vermin from whether it's through caravans or whether it's based on religion. This is part of the cycle of history. We've seen it in Europe. We've seen it in the United States. And it has not been forcefully condemned by a major political party in our country. Well, I think the Democrats are condemning it right now in terms of in terms of Donald Trump. And I think tomorrow, Mitch McConnell, as uh, Manu was saying, is going to go to the floor of the Senate. And I have a sense he's waiting till people are uh, maybe, you know, the uh, he's got the runoff in Georgia. He would like to he would like to win that seat. But Let's see what Mitch McConnell says. He's no fan of Donald Trump's. Right. Let's see if a leader will finally come well, out he and is say, a fan. this is disqualified. He is a fan of having his federal judges, right. of, of, of pushing back on abortion totally. and gay rights. But I think he's had it with Trump up to here, just saying, but let's, let's see. Well, McConnell last week had an opportunity to say after the anti-Semitic yes. thing that he wasn't going to support Donald Trump if he were the nominee. And he Manu did. asked the question right. and he refused to explicitly say He said something like, that. people who are meeting with white supremacists aren't yeah. going unlikely. to be, are unlikely to become president. But, but right. not that he would not support well, he them. Didn't, he, I mean, Donald Trump leveled what seemed a racist anti-Asian attack on his wife. That's right. And there was silence. And he didn't say anything after that either. Because he, uh, this was also before the election. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying this was before the election. He was hoping to win right. and not upset the base. But I think what this election has proven is that the base is softening and splintering a little bit. There are races across the country that Republican Trump supporters have lost because of their extreme views. I'm Mitch McConnell, if they lose Georgia tomorrow, will probably blame Trump for the second time losing Georgia and the Senate, uh, as a matter of fact. So so we are seeing a shift among Republicans. It's softening. I think it's going to be that. But when that is becoming clear, I think that's when you're going to see but Republicans we don't know if it's actually divert. It's softened for two weeks after January 6th, yeah. and then it's strengthened again. Mm-hmm. Well, right. I, I do, do. So you think that a significant part of the base is anti-Semitic and racist and... I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna par- to... I'll answer that. I think a significant part of the base has no problem with what he said and has no problem with him 
having dinner. So the, with they those can be toler- they're tolerant of racism, and to- but that's not the. But, okay. yes, this is exactly. an American problem. Sure. Right? We had white supremacist, anti-Semitic presidents in the not too distant past as part yeah, of our of history, right? So this is this is. Maybe- we also elected a black president though twice. I'm, I don't right, want right. to. I don't want to be right. naive, but I'm just saying like there is. And, you know, the arc of the, the moral backlash. universe has bends towards and we, justice. And we saw the backlash to that, right. right? The idea of, well, maybe we have become too woke and accepting, and that in, at a Florida court, Ron DeSantis's team uh, said that they defined woke, about, when asked by a lawyer, as um, believing that systemic problems in the United States about injustice need to be dealt with, right? Well, so it's, it's that right. is, it's effectively anything dealing with civil rights has now been but, denigrated. But Jake, even with everything we're talking about right now, he's still the odds-on favorite to yeah. be. No, he absolutely well, is. And, and here's the question. Yeah. When will Republicans stop making apologies for Donald Trump? He didn't know who was having right. dinner with him, et cetera. You know, like that's the question. falsely claimed that he, he denounced uh, Fuentes four times. Right. He didn't. Not stop even Stop apologizing. Thanks to all. Thanks. More than, what a depressing conversation. More than three <laughs> weeks and no answers. Now the father of one of the Idaho College slaying victims is speaking out. Stay with us. Tonight we're hearing from the father of one victim and two of the surviving roommates after the horrible slaying of four Idaho college students. It's been more than three weeks, and police in Moscow, Idaho, have not made any arrests or named any suspects. As CNN's Veronica Miracle reports for us now, this comes in. Investigators are starting to get results from forensic tests. It's been more than three weeks since the murders of four University of Idaho students, and police are starting to receive toxicology reports on the victim's hair, fibers, blood, and DNA, according to law enforcement, all considered critical evidence from the crime scene. The case remains unsolved. Police still have not found a murder weapon or named a suspect, frustrating at least one of the families of the victims. The father of Kaylee Gonsalves is speaking out, making an appearance on Fox Sunday morning. I, I do not feel confident, and that's why I push the envelope and say a little bit more. I hate to be that guy, but, um, you know, there's a job to do for everybody has a job and a role to play in this Includes, this is my role as the parent. Gonzalez saying he is trying to make sense of the information that police have given him. I can kind of tell by my daughter's texts, messages. She didn't call 911. She wasn't uh, saying anything along the lines of like she had heard something or she was in fear. So I'm just putting the, the, the dots together. Um, as far as the investigators, they're very tight lipped and they're keeping everything close to their vest. And I understand that. But investigators saying today they are trying to provide information while protecting the integrity of the investigation, saying in a statement, we firmly believe speculation and unvetted information is a disservice to the victims, their families and our community. The stabbing deaths of these four students has created turmoil at the university and in the quiet community of Moscow that hasn't recorded a single murder since 2015. On Friday at a memorial service, a local pastor read letters from two surviving roommates, Dylan Mortensen and Bethany Funky. And this is from Bethany. Maddie, Kaylee, Zanna and Ethan were truly all one of a kind. They all lit up any room they walked into and were gifts to this world expressing the sentiments of so many others who have gathered to honor the victims. I just want you to know that I will always love you and miss you forever. 
And Jake, throughout this investigation, there has been talk that Kaylee Gonsalves may have had a stalker. Well, police came out today and said they looked into an incident in October and they can confidently say it is not related to these murders. However, they are still looking into the possibility that Kaylee may have had a stalker. They're asking for information and tips on that, just like they are for this entire investigation. Jake. Mos uh, Veronica Miracle in Moscow, Idaho. Thank you so much. Why some parents are struggling to find vital children's pain medications. That's next. Stay with us. In our health lead now, some popular children's pain medications are in high demand right now, frustrating some parents as the flu, RSV, and COVID spread. Kroger, one of the nation's largest grocery and pharmacy chains, says it's seeing constrained inventories of children's acetaminophen and ibuprofen used to treat fever and pain. Joining us now to discuss CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. Elizabeth, this is alarming, I'm sure, for parents, the idea that pain relief for kids is in short supply. Yes, we've, you know, at least uh, if you're going to Kroger, that's the case. We're also hearing from Seattle Children's Hospital, Jake, that they're having trouble getting acetaminophen and ibuprofen products for their young patients. If this continues, if this gets worse, it's going to be a real problem. Hopefully they can nip this in the bud and it won't become like, say, the infant formula shortage that really kind of got out of hand. But let's look a little bit at what's behind it. Take a look at this map. Every state in red, which is almost every state, has high or very high levels of the flu. Only six states do not have high or very high levels of the flu. And that is part of what's going on here. It's just it's a lot of sick people wanting these medications. Also, unfortunately, COVID numbers have been spiking back up. Still relatively low. The week of November 26th, there were 33,000 people admitted to the hospital with COVID. 33,000. And that's up 27 percent from the previous week. So, you know, really what you can do here is make sure that you are up to date on your COVID vaccinations, make sure that you get a flu vaccine. Um, and really that's, that's all you can do. And hopefully they can manage to nip this in the bud early. And Elizabeth, we know that children have been hit hard with the respiratory virus RSV this season. How, how are kids doing with the flu this season? You know, there's also some pretty high numbers for the flu. Jake, I think that sometimes people forget that children get the flu. Let's take a look at this graph and you'll understand what I mean. That top line, that red line, that's flu hospitalization rates for the elderly, for people over 65. But right next to it, right the next line under is the yellow line, which is children. Hospitalization rates for children ages zero to four, the littlest children for the flu. So unfortunately, this virus hits the very old and the very young. And when you see this, you, it makes sense that in some places you might be seeing these shortages. We're also having these supply chain issues still lingering after COVID. All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. A family feud gets the royal treatment. Harry and Meghan tell all in a new documentary, but will it backfire? A royal feud. That appears to be the storyline revealed in the new trailer for the upcoming Netflix documentary, Harry and Meghan. Take a look. It's really hard to look back on it now and go, what on earth happened? You hear that? That is the sound of hearts breaking all around the world. She's becoming a royal rock star. And then everything changed. There's a hierarchy of the family. 
you know, there's leaking, but there's also planting of stories. There was a war against Meghan to suit other people's agendas. It's about hatred. It's about race. It's a dirty game. The pain and suffering of women marrying into this institution, this feeding frenzy. I realized they're never going to protect you. I was terrified. I didn't want history to repeat itself. No one knows the full truth. We know the full truth. Yikes. CNN Royal correspondent Max Foster joins us. Um, Max, Harry and Meghan uh, complained initially about a lack of privacy. The media wouldn't leave them alone. And now they are giving, they gave a film crew access to their lives. Uh, And already I see response in the UK that they're hypocrites and it seems like there's some sort of backfiring going on. Yeah, I mean, here's the hypocrisy that's often pointed towards them by some, particularly in the British tabloids, that they uh, are talking about protecting their privacy all the time, very keen to protect their privacy, have a right to protect their privacy, but then use the media to um, reveal very intimate parts of their lives. And that is an accusation, but it also feels like a mission to them. I mean, you were hearing there how Prince Harry talks about the pain and the suffering of uh, women who marry into the royal family. And the royal family has a duty to protect those women. And they failed in that duty and, in fact, were planting stories to undermine the Duchess of Sussex. All of these things, of course, the palace, the wider family, absolutely deny. They say they did protect and welcome Meghan into the royal family. But we'll have to see what's in this documentary to back up these claims. And no one's seen the full documentary here in London, as far as I know. So we don't know what's in it. So it's very difficult for the family to respond at this point. But I think they're very nervous, frankly. And we haven't seen this kind of access to members of the royal family I don't believe since the 1990s, um, Buckingham Palace must be preparing for the worst. Yep, and you know, you're referring back there to the famous Diana Panorama interview, also an interview that Prince Charles gave to uh, the BBC. It was seen as a massive mistake and it backfired, exposing too much light, much light on the inner workings of the British monarchy, taking away uh, the mystique from all of that. And there's a fear that this will do the same again. But there is no control over this couple. They've left the royal family. Uh, they don't owe the royal family anything as far as they're concerned. The traditional way of dealing with all of these issues is not to respond to them by the royal family. But we'll have to see what happens this time, uh, Jake, because uh, the late queen has now passed. Uh, The king is now in control. Charles will now decide how to respond to this. Prince William has also been elevated to the Prince of Wales. I get the feeling that they're pretty fed up with all of these accusations sitting unanswered, particularly from the Oprah Winfrey uh, interview, for example. And I think they may respond this time, but they want to see what's in it, of course, first. And we get to see that for the first time on, on Thursday. And Prince Harry also has a, a memoir coming out uh, as well. Max Foster, really, yeah. thank you so much. Appreciate it. I guess they're bracing for the worst at Buckingham. Uh, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you know what you can do? You can go to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts and you can download it and listen to it there. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.